Hey, welcome to tonight's California Haunts Radio. How is everybody? How was your weekend? I hope you said great because mine, mine was pretty good. Mine was pretty good. Welcome. It's a Monday night. It's warming up. It's uh, topped us out at uh, up in the 80s. We're going to hit the 90s this week at some point. Well, there is a change in. Anyway, tonight's show, my name is Charlotte. I'm your host. And uh, I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team www.californiahaunts.org and we are located up and we have people up and down the state of California, Nevada, Washington and parts of Oregon that can help you with your paranormal needs and we are nonprofit, so we do not charge for this stuff so it's all free because we're just out trying to help people that's what we do anyway tonight's guest was on a couple weeks ago when I had my uh, other computer completely committed suicide and melted down we're on the new computer tonight. David Brody is really cool. I am a person who has collected Roman and Greek antiquities over the years. And um, it's fun to talk with him because some of the coins that he's going to show us and stuff tonight, I have at least a couple of those coins. Not the real big ones, but the, but the smaller kind in, in my collection. So um, I was really enjoying the interview with him the last time when everything died. So hopefully tonight with the new computer and the new camera and all the, all, all the extra new goodies I have, Nothing's going to die. So, what I want to do is let's get the comments going. All right. Comments are working. And if anybody on Facebook that has problem with the comments, uh, PM me later because there's another way that you can get involved with commenting on, on these shows. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get Mr. Brody up. Hello. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. How are you tonight? Good. Hopefully this this will hopefully we'll stay on the air this time. Take two, take two. <laughs> take two, take two. Well, I'm glad to have you back. Tell everybody about yourself, sir. So I'm a, a lawyer by trade, um, but about 20 years ago, I sort of fell into this whole cat, this whole um, subject matter of pre-Columbus exploration of America. And I'm also at that time I was a fiction writer, sort of as a hobby, and now I've transitioned closed down my law practice and I write fiction pretty much full time. And I'm really focused in on this, again, this whole idea of waves of European explorers coming across the Atlantic prior to Columbus, the idea that the Atlantic Ocean was really um, a highway during ancient times more than a barrier. And so I started looking at things like the Knights Templar and artifacts in New England that seemed to indicate that they were here. And I've worked my way backward and um, most recently, I focused in on the idea of ancient Romans perhaps coming over here because 
There's a lot of artifacts. You mentioned Roman coins, mm -hmm. uh, other artifacts uh, found in and around New England and the Ohio River Valley that basically date back to around the second century. And so the question is, how did all these Roman era artifacts and coins end up in America? You know, either they got over here through strange circumstance or perhaps at some point there was a Roman ship that either was blown off course or just decided to make the crossing. And there's evidence, echoes of this, this trip, evidence that we still see today. And um, so over the course of the past decade, I periodically would come across some of these pieces of evidence that sort of didn't fit into the timeline of the medieval time period. Uh, and I put them aside and say, you know what, that's interesting. I'll go back to that later on. And then at some point that pile of evidence started growing higher and higher and I couldn't ignore it any longer. And I really devoted uh, about six or seven months of research to trying to determine whether or not there was enough to tell a story. You know, again, my training as a lawyer is there's all this evidence. So, you know, I'm trained to evaluate it and critique it and weigh it and potentially dismiss it if necessary. But all this evidence is there and there has to be some kind of story that tells that that that, that fits the story that that evidence is telling. So whether I have that story right or not, we can talk about that tonight. But but there is a story. There is Roman era uh, artifacts here in, the, in in North America. We just have to figure out how it got here or what it's doing here. Well, I was just thinking as you were saying that, didn't Plato have uh, have maps or have have records? Because I know he he kind of thought he knew where or, you know, where Atlantis was. You know the, the reports. So could they could they right. have been going off those by, by possibility? So Plato, Plato was talking about the ancient ancient civilization of Atlantis, which was destroyed around around twelve thousand years ago, and he placed it um, basically, I think, in the mid Atlantic along the mid Atlantic Ridge, and he was really writing, uh, reflecting the the legends of the time, and actually he got, he got the dates right, which is really fascinating because he said eleven thousand six hundred years ago, and it turns out modern scientists can date the catastrophic, catastrophic event that caused the end of the last ice age, some mm -hmm. kind of impact event to exactly that time period. So Plato had the dates exactly right, which tell me that the Atlantis legend probably was, was real. And that's one of the, one of the books actually I wrote about, it's called Echoes of Atlantis. And that was a different book. Um, but as you just indicated that, I'm sorry, my my doorbell is talking back to me. I apologize for that. It's okay, mine does it too. <laughs> the the, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is the area that Plato identified. Um, and it's possible that at one time in, in world history that the ocean levels were much lower mm -hmm. and therefore it would have been a lot easier to cross the Atlantic because a lot of the what is now underground now would have been islands, the coastlines would have been closer together. And so the idea of ancient uh, mariners crossing the Atlantic although perhaps a daunting concept today during time periods where the water levels were, were much lower would have been an easier excursion. It seems like it because, uh, you know, he, he had that pretty well mapped out. So there's no reason why, you know, they might've been maybe following some of that to, to come, you know, to come over. Maybe they were looking for Atlantis when they, when they found this. You know? Yeah. So the, so when the Romans came over, we're talking, this would have been second century, um, to me, they would have been following in the footsteps of the ancient, of the Phoenicians. So okay. the Phoenicians were the great um, mariners of the ancient world. They're basically called the merchant marine of the ancient world. So we're talking for the Phoenicians maybe around 3,000 years ago in that time period. 
And then at some point they fought wars against the Romans. This would have been about 400 BC. The Romans eventually defeated them and sort of incorporated them. When we're talking about the Phoenicians, we're talking about the Carthaginians and in the right. Bible, the Canaanites, and they incorporated them into their empire. So when you, when you incorporate uh, a defeated foe, you often end up with their knowledge and their technology. And in this case, it would have been the seafaring technology and navigation skills of the defeated Phoenician peoples would have been incorporated into the Roman Empire. So the Phoenicians probably were here earlier than that. They had the skill and the, the again, the ability to make these ships that were much bigger than Columbus and navigate by the stars. That's probably how the Romans would have figured it out. So as far as the stuff, you know, finding stuff in the United States, what was the first artifact, if you know, that people had so I'll tell you how I sort of came upon this. Okay. Um, okay. My, my wife and I uh, recently relocated to the North shore of, of Boston, a town called Newburyport. And here in Newburyport, there's a, a barrier island, Plum Island. It separates really the mainland from the ocean. It's like a giant sandbar. And at the whenever there's a big storm, people go out to the Plum Island beaches with their metal detectors looking for ancient coins. And about four years ago, four and a half years ago, September of 2016, there was a massive storm came up this, from the south and a husband and wife went out to the town beach in Newbury on Plum Island and they metal detected. And by the end of the day and a half they spent there, they had come back with about 20 Roman era coins that had washed ashore. And and it was a, sort of, there you go, thank you. Um, it, was a, it was a big story. Like how could these coins, you know, you might find one or two that sort of randomly found their way, you know, a collector dropped it or, or whatever, but when you have that many clustered together, the, the probably the only possible explanation is that there was a ship um, on the floor of the ocean that was disturbed by this big storm and a cluster, whether it was a box of coins or a bag of coins or whatever it was, somehow jostled free and were washed ashore by that. And so that, those 20 coins match, uh, you're working looking at four coins now that were found a little further south on the coast but there basically there have been six or seven different clusters of Roman era coins that have washed ashore on the North shore and the South shore of Massachusetts over the past say 50 years. And, you know, the good thing about coins is they're easy to date. The dates right on them, or we can look at the picture of the emperor mm -hmm. on the face on the, on the front side and determine it. But again, other than one or two, perhaps sort of being out of place, when you were faced with that many coins, there almost has to be a story behind it. And the story can't be that seagulls flew across and dropped them here. And it, it can't be that, you know, slippery fingered collectors brought their coins to the beach and lost them. I mean, those are just silly explanations to me as a, as a lawyer by trade, I need, I need something more rigorous. There all these coins are here. And, and in addition to here, it turns out they're in the Ohio river Valley there has to be a story. So I started looking into this more, more carefully and it turns out it's not just coins, but there's a lot of other artifacts that we found in and around New England um, and also in, in South America, Central America, uh, Amphora, for example, um, uh, in Brazil. And, and, and we were able to get hard science behind this. So that the Amphora jars that were found uh, in Brazil were, were luminescence tested which is a technology which determines the age of, of artifacts that have oftentimes clay or, or stone artifacts, basically determines when the last time was the, the interior particles were exposed 
to sunlight. Uh, anyway, came back second century AD. Um, and so it's a terracotta figurine, which is clearly Roman style and Roman era found in Mexico City beneath the lowest level of a, of a pyramid. It was also tested uh, at, a, at a university in, in Germany. Again, second century AD. So there, there's hard science behind a lot of these artifacts. And of course, the coins themselves tell a date. So we have this, this collection of both coins and Roman artifacts mm -hmm. that are here. And so now, you know, what's the story behind that? Well, how do they get here? What are they doing here? Um, you know, let's figure it out. Right, right, right. right. But it's not just it's not just artifacts, it's buildings too. I mean, you guys have found, found you know, stuff up, like, like the tower. Right, so the, so the Newport Tower is, is that that's, that's although it's in the Romanesque style, you know, we think that's more modern. We think that's one of those artifacts that, that is evidence of medieval exploration of uh, America by, we'll call them the, the, the remnants, the vestiges of the outlawed Knights Templar. So mm -hmm. after the Templars were outlawed in 1307, um, you know, the, the Templars themselves, many of them were rounded up and, and, and jailed and tortured and killed, but a lot of them, most of them escaped. And their treasures also escaped, probably most importantly. No one's quite sure where those treasures ended up. And one of the theories is that uh, a group of the Templars, uh, because they had fleets of ships and, and knowledge of ancient navigation, navigational secrets, uh, crossed the Atlantic. They had sort of set up a safe haven for themselves here in America. And this tower that we're looking at is in Newport, Rhode Island. And there's lots of evidence that indicates it's medieval in origin and, and, and built by the remnants of the Templars we are trying desperately to get some really hard, some more hard science behind that. There's lots of what I call circumstantial evidence that points to it being uh, Scottish uh, design. The Templars often, a lot of them were Scottish and also uh, medieval design. You can see that just from the picture. Uh, you know, we've done carbonating of the mortar. It came back early 1400s. Uh, there's lots of hard, hard science um, already, but we wanna get a little bit more behind it. But this is evidence potentially of pre-Columbus exploration not going back as far as the romans however that that takes us back even mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. thousand years mm -hmm. but um but again this goes back to what i said at the beginning charlotte which is i think that the ancient peoples came back and forth you know not every day not regularly but frequently that the atlantic ocean was considered more of a highway than a barrier and isn't there a, a, a stonehenge here in the united states as well well. Right. So the America Stonehenge site up in um, Salem, New Hampshire, I mentioned the Phoenicians earlier. Uh, one of the possibilities as to who built the Stonehenge site in America and, and like Stonehenge, England, it's basically a giant calendar in stone uh, marking the solstices and the equinoxes, sunrises and sunsets, cross quarter days. You sit in the central part of the ceremonial part of the complex and look out to the horizon and and the sun rises and sets on top of a, a pedestal, almost like a golf ball on a tee, uh, very similar to what we have at Stonehenge. But one of the possibilities and some of the evidence at that site indicates it was built by the ancient Phoenicians who had come over here, again, about 3,000 years ago for the purposes of trading for and mining copper, copper being needed to mix with tin to make bronze to fuel the great amount of demand for bronze during the Bronze Age. Um, there was tin deposits up in southern England, Cornwall, 
and we know the Phoenicians went that far up out of the Mediterranean, up the up the Atlantic, uh, to the North Atlantic, to Cornwall. And the question is, if they continue on uh, westward to North America, they had their tin from Cornwall. Let's go get the copper from North America. The Native American legends talk about ancient peoples coming to the Great Lakes to take the float copper away. Uh, so that story sort of holds together. But the idea would have been that the Stonehenge site in southern New Hampshire would have been sort of their base of operations, their ceremonial site. And they would from there would go further out to the Midwest, the Great Lakes and get the float copper and bring it back to Europe and mix it with the tin. And there's your bronze. That was my next question about the Native Americans. Surely they, I mean, obviously they, they didn't keep written records unless, you know, you know, they were, you know, doing their, their cave art. But um, um, I guess, like you say, the Native Americans have reports of these, uh, these ancients coming as well. So it must have been passed, you know, by word of mouth. Now, now. Right. So the, the Native Americans in the Great Lakes region, when the pioneers first arrived and they and they could tell that mining operations had been conducted there. And in fact, carbon dating was done on one of the mine shafts, the wooden structures, and it came back 3000 years ago. So the carbon dating confirms that 3000 years ago, some, somebody was here mining copper in the Great Lakes. Uh, when the early settlers asked the Native Americans you know, about it, they said basically that, you know, People like you, white-skinned people, came many, you know, many, 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 many generations ago and took it and traded for it. Um, so their oral history confirms that. And then in New England, the Native American tribes, uh, both Wampanoag, uh, which is in southern Massachusetts and northern Rhode Island, and also the the Mi'kmaq up in Nova Scotia and Maine, uh, tribal leaders on, from both those tribes recently have confirmed their oral history to be that. The, the Templars were here and built the Newport Tower uh, and prior to prior to Columbus. So that again, their oral history confirms what I said earlier that mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. late 1300s, early 1400s, Newport Tower time period that there were uh, what they call the Templars were here during that time period. So, um, you know, the Native Americans, like you said, they don't have a written history, but they have a very rich and sacred oral history that they keep and pass down so you know even though it's not written that doesn't mean it's not valid i had read um or seen somewhere with the newport tower that it was designed um, or they think it's designed with the planets and everything in mind where the windows are where the sun comes through and all that stuff do you know anything about yeah. that can, can you put it back up charlotte the yeah, picture of it up again yeah so one of the really fascinating things, I belong to a group called uh, NERA, New England Antiquities Research Association. Um, and we just did a, a lot of work at the tower just a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Um, the technology, something called LIDAR, L-I-D-A-R, uh, was, was it sort of a mapping technology. And what we've been able to do is map out the entire Newport Tower park area with LIDAR. And what you can then do next, and the same thing was done at America Stonehenge, by the way, you can then use, use LIDAR. It's basically, it's picture just a photograph, a, a, a really immense high detailed photograph, three dimensional. You can then use the software program that comes with it and remove all the buildings. And so now for the first time we can, we can plug in using um, ast astronomy software, we can plug in the different planets, the sun, the moon, plug in any date and time that you want 
and you can pr project to see how you can see one window there in the Newport Tower, but on the back side, there's three or four other ones. And they're sort of randomly placed. And on the inside of the tower, these oddly placed alcoves and niches, niches and stuff. And one of the thoughts is that these windows and alcoves were used to mark astronomical events. But because there's so many buildings around the park blocking the rising sun and the setting sun and the planets, it's really been hard to prove that. Now with this LIDAR technology that we just finished, we're gonna be able to, to, to marry that with software from, from the astronomy world and, and determine how many of these alignments are accurate and how many of them are not. And, and, and that will also, I think, tell us a great deal about not only who might've built this, but also because of something called the tilt uh, of the earth, the orbit of the earth, it, it sort of wobbles like a top. Sure. You can then determine the time period during which these alignments were spot on, and that'll give us an exact date. So for example, at America Stonehenge, uh, a, a Harvard University computer program was used to determine at what point those alignments were exactly on as opposed to being half a degree off. And that date, date came back about 3000 years ago, again, which is consistent with the Phoenician time period. So, so both America Stonehenge and the Newport Tower, we did it just within the past six months, did LIDAR work on that. And we're just starting to dive in to marry that to the astronomy. So, you know, this is, this is sort of we're evolving. I've, I've talked a lot already about different science, hard science. We're really trying hard to get um, whatever scientific tools we can, whether it's carbon dating, luminescence testing, LIDAR, marrying LIDAR and astronomy, really harder science behind a lot of the theories that we have, the anecdotal evidence that we have, um, because I think it, you know, we're, we're really trying to rewrite the history books. And so mm -hmm. sort of incumbent upon us to present extraordinary evidence if we're going to do that. I think we're up to the task. That's all. Okay. So, yeah. A question that keeps coming to mind then is, and like you guys probably don't know this because obviously there's not enough rub, you know, rubble around to find, you know, stuff to find. But I mean, they built, obviously built this tower. They obviously built, you know, America Stonehenge. Were they intending to settle here? Because normally, I mean, if you, if you look at like the Egyptian stuff and all that, you know, when they built this stuff, it's also they can watch the transition to the sun and everything for their crops and whatnot. So do you think that they had the intent that they were all going like, to like move out here? Yeah, so both the sites, both the Newport Tower site and the America Stonehenge site are ceremonial sites. Okay. And typically, and you don't hear this very often from American archaeologists, but if you speak to European archaeologists, you get this a lot. They always sort of laugh and say, whenever we, whenever we excavate beneath an old church, or an old sacred site, it's always pristine because people don't throw their rubbish away where they pray. So you're not gonna find a lot of archeological uh, detritus and, 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 and junk, you know, litter uh, at the Newport Tower or at America Stonehenge because it was a site devoted to their gods. And so if it was, you know, if it, it's one thing if it was a, a village or if it was the, the town center or something, then you're gonna find a bunch of stuff, pottery, shag, whatever. So at those particular sites, we don't find much. Mm -hmm. um, your question about settlement, it's unclear still whether the when the Templars came and built the tower, whether that was supposed to be the anchor for a settlement, which never happened, mm -hmm. or it was more meant as a, as a marker, as almost like a prime meridian for future navigation. 
you know, it, it doesn't appear that there was a large settlement of Templars here for whatever reason. And same thing with America Stonehenge. It looks like the site was used as a stopover point. Um, it might have been used ceremonial, but it, it doesn't look like there was a large cluster of permanent inhabitants there in the area. But that, I mean, the American Stonehenge site is 3,000 years old, so it's a little harder to, to determine that. Mm -hmm. um, the other problem that we have, to be honest, is, is um, the mainstream archaeological community, they have a uh, sort of a custom. They, they only like to dig in places where they, they know they're going to find something, you know, and so they, we, we try to get them out to, to dig, you know, for example, at America Stonehenge and, and they're like, ah, you know, we, we can't be guaranteed. There's also a lot of pressure in the, in the academic community that, you know, Columbus was first and that there really was nobody here before Columbus with the asterisk being the site up in, in, in New Finland, the Lonsdale Meadow site, they sort of admit, okay, well, yeah, the, the Norse were here in, in, in the early parts of the 11th century, but that was so far north it almost doesn't count. But other than them, nobody was here before Columbus. And it, for a long time, it was almost academic suicide for somebody trying to get their PhD dissertation done or wanted to go and uh, you know, get a job as a faculty member to get tenure. If you started looking at these areas of uh, these fringe history areas, uh, it really was a dead end for your career. So for a long time and continuing to today, you don't see a lot of um, academic types looking at these sites. When we were at America Stonehenge recently, for example, we, we were able to get the state archaeologist from New Hampshire to come with us to watch this new technology, this optically stimulated luminescence technology that has been developed that we were using there. And uh, he came to the site to watch the, the test being done. But that was the first time he'd ever been to the America Stonehenge site, which just blew my mind that this is the state archaeologist. New Hampshire is a tiny state. There's not a lot of archaeological sites there. He grew up in the area, but for whatever reason, uh, just never could bring himself to, to come take a look. There was not enough academic curiosity or perhaps there was pressure on him not to go. But I just thought that that just that said so much about how the mainstream academic community feels about some of these sites. You can't even go look like you're going to dismiss it. I, I, I guess I'm fine if you want to dismiss it after you've taken a look at it and right. investigate it. But you're going to dismiss it without even looking like where's where's the intellectual rigor behind that? Um, so anyway, that's kind of some of the things that we're dealing with. And one of the reasons why we're working hard to get hard science behind behind these sites. Well, it's kind of like the whole thing with the Sasquatch, too. I mean, until they until the scientists have a physical body. There really isn't a, a scientific interest in, in, in looking for it, even though even though you've got all these sightings. It, it's um, I understand the pressures in academia to sort of tote the party line. Mm -hmm. And I, I get that to a, to a degree. I'm sympathetic to that. But at, at some point, um, I, I just I think it, at some point you owe it to future generations to be open minded about all this stuff. It's just fascinating to think that they that they got this far. You know what I mean? From 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 where they were, it's fascinating. But like you say again, the ocean wasn't like it was either because I mean there were land masses that that were above you know sea level at that point, just like you know just like everything went under. Like a, look at Atlantis. Yeah. So what? 
when we're talking about the oceans being different levels, we have to we have to go back to you know eleven thousand years ago or before. So in the past mm -hmm. eleven thousand years, when we're talking about the Romans or the Phoenicians or the Templars, the ocean level is pretty much what it is today. Mm -hmm. So we have to go back before the last ice age really to get different levels. And there's all this discussion in, in the and finally, you know, again, this is another example of how long it took people to, to sort of redirect the ocean liner. But the Bering Land Strait, we keep hearing over and over again that, you know, that's how all the Indians came across into North America and South America. And a lot of the tribes say, no, no, the Cherokee, for example, say, no, 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 we came from across, the, they call it the Sunrise Sea. We came across the Atlantic. And and the academic type say, no, 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 you didn't. We know your history better than you do. And they say, no, our history, you know. And so we're finally getting people to start to understand something called the Salutrian hypothesis um, that at, at one point, maybe 18,000 years ago in that time frame, the ocean levels were much lower and the Atlantic would have been a lot easier to cross and that people did come across from the Iberian Peninsula and that some Native Americans indeed came across from the Atlantic, not from across the Bering Land Bridge. And mm -hmm. so, okay, you know, good good we finally figured that out but it took a, it took a lot longer than it needed to because so many people were so close-minded to it um again it, it it it's frustrating that we we see the same thing happening over and over again the site in turkey called gobekli tepe when when i went to school and perhaps when you did too charlotte we learned that the the seat of civilization was mesopotamia mm -hmm. where the tigers and the euphrates rivers came together and that's where civilization was born and that was six thousand years ago well it turns out it was actually twelve thousand years ago sorry we were wrong by you know a factor of two because this gobekli tepe site in turkey evidences amazing levels of, of civilization in order to build the site you needed all sorts of things that we define as part of an organized civilized urban society that couldn't happen otherwise so again the archaeologists they weren't just wrong but they were wrong by a factor of two and then we talk about we talked about salutrians as opposed to the bering land strait the, the how long uh uh homo sapiens have been in north america that date keeps getting pushed back by factors of you know it used to be no more than than twenty thousand years ago now it's up to 40 or 50,000 years ago. Again, it just keeps getting pushed back. And it's not so much that that the dates change, it's the stubbornness exhibited by the, the mainstream archeological community that prevents that knowledge from happening quicker. It's not so much that they're wrong, everyone's gonna be wrong, it's that they stick their head in the sand and, and, and sort of put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes. That's the frustrating part. Not all of them, of course, but enough of them. Um, it, it just it's just frustrating to deal with on a and it happens on every level, whether it's whether it's the Templars or the Romans or the Salutrian theory or whatever it is. It just happens all the time. And I guess, it's, you know, just it is what it is. But it, it, does, it does get frustrating after a while. Isn't it also the technology? Because our technology is a lot better. Like you say, there's this new dating method. That's even more accurate than the last dating method. So you're going to find out that some of the stuff you you, you dated before, it, all, all the numbers are going to be off because because the new ones more accurate. Right. So this optically stimulated luminescing luminescent testing, again to, to repeat what it is, is if you have a stone chamber, uh, for example, uh, uh, at America Stonehenge, and and you can find a part of the chamber that hasn't been disturbed, hasn't been archaeologically disturbed in any way. 
Um, you can get in there, put a, cover it with a tent, go in there and try to get some dirt from behind where those stones are. There's a stone okay. chamber and behind the stones is dirt. And that dirt has not seen the light of day since the construction date of that chamber. And if there are quartz crystals in that dirt, you can take that dirt, send it to a laboratory through some kind of science. I can't explain, I'm not a good scientist. You can measure when the last time was that quartz interacted with sunlight. And that'll basically tell you, and there's a, there's a plus or minus of course, but basically it will tell you the date of construction of that chamber. And then it's fascinating technology. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple technology. It's fairly full, foolproof. That's what we use to date the, the terracotta head in Mexico, the Roman era head, and also the amphora jars in the Bay of the Bay of Jars, is what it's called in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Um, and that's what we started to do. We did the testing. We're waiting for the results still at the America Stonehenge site in New Hampshire. We're trying to get permission from the authorities in Rhode Island to dig down and do the same thing as the Newport Tower. Uh, but this is this is the kind of hard science that that will eventually either prove or possibly disprove our theories. This is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. The last time we talked, we, we got into a big conversation about Atlantis and the location okay. of Atlantis and, and where you thought it was, because I kind of thought it was off the Azores out there off of Florida because they've got all the, you know, they, they, they've got those road, those supposed road things that, that go, go into the ocean. You just said two different things. So the Azores is where I think it is. Off okay, of Florida okay. would be further would be further right. west. There, there's something called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that runs right down like a spine, of, it's the spine of a snake, going from Iceland down through the Azores, and 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 I think during times when the Atlantic was lower, that would have been exposed and above the water's level. You mentioned another site off of Florida, off of the Bahamas, mm -hmm. that also would have been exposed. So there's two, there's more than one site that that was exposed during the different um, uh, Atlantic rising and, and, and falling time periods. Um, just based on the way it was described by Plato, he said, it, it, he described it as being just outside the pillars of Hercules, which are the Straits of Gibraltar. And so that's, that's sort of where the Azores are. And, the, and so that's where I think it, it is, but I could be wrong about that, but, but that to me makes the most sense. Um, and there's some really fascinating, and, and again, one of the books I wrote was focusing on this fascinating pieces of evidence. For example, the the salt the saltwater um, spawning habits of the freshwater eels. There are eels both in North America and in Europe that live in lakes, freshwater, and and they come down when it comes time to spawn every six or seven years, whatever it is. They come down the rivers. And they and they swim out in the Atlantic Ocean and they meet in the middle um, and they spawn together. And it's a really interesting thing that both the, the eels from Europe and the eels from North America and they go back. And it's a shallow area called the Sea of Sargasso. I, I might be pronouncing that wrong. But what's interesting about it is many scientists believe that the reason they do that is because of something called nostophilia. It's the word from nostalgia, nostophilia. It's it's the, the instinct and the and the urge to return to an ancient homeland. The species has its own instincts of their own homeland. The idea being that at some point that that Sea Sargasso, even even though it's underwater now, was up above and was an island and was freshwater, which is why the eels are freshwater animals. And it 
collapsed. There was some kind of calamity and the eels survived. They swam east and west, Europe and the United States, the United States and Europe, pardon me. And they made their way inland, but they still go back to spawn back to their ancient homeland, even though it's salt water, even though it's not their habitat, but they meet back there in the middle. What other explanation could there possibly be for these eels on both sides of the Atlantic other than at some point in their common history, that's where they lived. So that kind of stuff, you know, like you can't just, you got to do something with that evidence. For me, again, like I said, it goes back to the evidence. There has to be, if you don't like my explanation for that, fine. Give me another explanation for why the eels meet out there. And there's also a, a, a species of um, butterflies, monarch butterflies in along the northern coast of Venezuela that, again, during spawning, during um, mating season, I guess we'll call it, they fly north for about five or 600 miles out over the Atlantic, and they circle around and around and around and around, and eventually they fall into the sea and they die. But scientists believe that at one point there was an island beneath where they swim to, and they're looking for the island, and then finally out of exhaustion, they, keep, they just run out of gas, but they continue to, to fly out there as if in their DNA wired into their instincts, that's where they're supposed to go to lay their eggs or whatever. Um, it's a fascinating thing, swarms of these butterflies flying out over the ocean and, and then just collapsing into the sea. That's wild. Didn't Columbus have a mention of, of, of the eels when he crossed over, when he, when he came across? Because I remember there being a mention of serpents in the Sargasso Sea. Yeah, he, he, so Sargasso Sea is an interesting area because it's sort of, it's like all lots of weeds, even though you're in the middle of the ocean, it's it's weeds and it's it, it's sort of a almost, I won't say swampy, but it doesn't feel like the ocean. So he mm -hmm. did describe something that looks about like that. And and that that's closer to where the area where you said you think Atlantis might be. And that's where some people think it might be as well. So those are the two sort of leading possibilities for it. Um, Very interesting. This is all fascinating to me. I loved history in, 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 in college and high school, and I loved, uh, you know, I just, I just loved it. Just loved it. Um, you have, you sent me another artifact photo, which we can look at real quick. You can tell me what this is. I, I, I think I know what it is, but we'll see. If I'm right. <laughs> You're, you have all the answers. To yeah, so this is one of the, I think that's the one that was found off the coast of Maine, but maybe it's the one that was found in Brazil. So those are called, a, it's an amphora jar. This is basically the shipping containers of the ancient world, and and but they're Roman. And one of them, I'm not sure if it's this one or a different one I sent to you, was the one that was dated to the second century using the luminescence testing technology I mentioned before. So again, so, a whole bunch of them were found uh, in Rio de Janeiro, uh, as if an entire ship worth of them had been had been uh, wrecked, and the amphora jar were scattered across the the seabed. And I think I mentioned earlier that the, the, the Brazilians call that the Bay of Jars, J-A-R-S, because there's so many of those there. But also off the coast of Maine, a few jars were found off of uh, Castine Bay um, in, in Maine. And, uh, and again, Roman era. So the question has to be, where did they come from? There's, there's too many of these things on our side of the Atlantic um, to, to, to sort of explain away as as, as one-offs. Um, you, you've probably got other pictures there. I think of things I sent you, uh, oil lamps and anchors and, and all, again, all, all sorts of a collection of, of Roman era 
seafaring uh, artifacts that we have here in North America. So again, wow. they, they, they tell the story. I might have some of the details wrong, but they are screaming that they're screaming, pay attention to me. I got a story to tell. Is that one clay or is that one glass? Clay. Okay. Terracotta. One of the glass pieces I have, one of the Roman glass pieces I have, has similar uh, markings on it like that. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, I think that's just from being underwater for so long. But um, experts have taken it and compared it, and they've actually been able to to take one of those terracotta jars. I don't know if it was that one or a different one, and they've mm -hmm. been able to determine it was actually the date, you know, second century, third century, uh, Iberian Peninsula. They've been able to analyze the composition of the of the of the terracotta, the clay itself, and the design. And they've been able to pinpoint exactly where and when that was built, was uh, crafted and made. Uh, so somehow it sailed its way across. I don't think it floated across. It mm -hmm. came across in a boat. The boat sank. And there we have it. What a lot of people don't realize is I have a um, small collection of Roman and Greek, uh, Greek, Greek, listen to me, Greek antiquities here at the house. So when I'm looking at this stuff, it's kind of it's really fun for me because I've got coins and four jars and I've got um, little makeup jars, you know, and stuff like that. that and so some of it's glass, so some of it's um, clay. That I have. Right. And, and, and what people don't realize is that, you know, if you go to Europe and the Mediterranean, this stuff is pretty easy to find because the Roman Empire was so vast and had such a such a duration. There's a lot of it in Europe, but we shouldn't have it here. Like mm -hmm. occasionally people like yourself, you know, you collect it. And so you bring it across or it's shipped across. But I'm guessing, Charlotte, when you when you go to the beach, you don't bring your Roman coins with you. I'm, I'm just no. guessing. No. No, and so you know, they, they keep them in a in a display cabinet, or you keep them in your safe deposit box, or you, whatever you have. But you know, they 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 don't end up at the beach after a storm. And so no. there's a different story going on with those than than the story you're telling here. Um, you know, and, and so there's a, there's a there's a some guy did a whole study about the all the Roman coins that were found here, and his conclusion was that every single one of them, and there were probably forty different examples. You know, each example had more than one coin. The conclusion was that every single one of them was a collector who lost his coins at the beach or out in the woods. And I just I just laughed out loud at that because, you know, I have friends who collect whether it's baseball cards or stamps or right. whatever. They don't they don't take them to the beach with them. No. They, you know, they, they treasure them. They keep. Them. So maybe once that happened, I don't know, but 40 times. Come on. Yeah. Just, yeah. And no, so. mine are kept in a nice cabinet. Some of them are encased in plastic, you know, just yeah, exactly. Just you, know? You, you, you keep you keep them safe. They're they're a they're valuable, b they're important to you. You don't lose them at that. Just yeah. Anyway, and the so. other thing people don't realize too with some of these coins was the earlier coins, like the ones that the, 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 the Chinese had, they actually had holes in the coins, so they could so they could tie right there, so they could tie them off with leather to their to their belt, yeah. so they wouldn't lose the coins. Yeah, look, occasionally they probably lost them. I, I'm not saying no one's ever lost a coin yeah, before. Yeah. But you can't tell me every single one is, it just, you gotta, you, you know, comment. It's a, I used to have a law professor who used to say, when you when you walk into the courtroom, don't leave your common sense at the door, right? So it's the same thing. Common sense is probably the most important intellectual skill that any of us have. And when someone says something like that, you just gotta go, please, come on. You gotta do better than that. It's yeah. like you say, it's a shame that the scientists don't want to go in and dig those areas. 
you know, like around the tower and around Stonehenge, because there's probably a lot more stuff out there than what we than, than what we actually know about. Well, and the, and the thing about the archaeological community is, is, is they basically have a have a policy that if evidence wasn't taken out of the ground during a, a supervised archaeological dig, then it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And and when you, so basically, they're discounting uh, the kind of testing that we're doing. You know, optically stimulated luminescence testing. They don't mm -hmm. they don't buy that necessarily. Cartographic evidence. Uh, Native American oral history, architectural evidence. I mean, all the different, you know, I was a liberal arts major. So, you know, for once in my life, it was, it paid off for me. Okay. Most people, liberal arts, you don't really get to do it. But for something like this, we need to look at, we need to use every tool in our belt. It's not just archaeology. Again, it's, it's cartography, it's religion, it's ar architecture. You know, it's all different kinds of, every field can weigh in on this. But for an archaeologist, they only like to take the archaeological evidence. But the truth of the matter is, you know, take draw a five-mile circle around your house or where you live. How many archaeological digs have occurred in that in that circumference? Probably none. None, yeah. Like, I mean, how many people have archaeological digs in their neighborhood? Such a minuscule amount of the land that we live on has been has been explored and dug into. I understand why it, it's hard to do an archaeological dig. You take a you know, a yard by a yard, it takes months. But because of that, you have to look at other kinds of evidence. It's impossible to dig every place. So we need to be open to other, you know, other disciplines that have something to add. Uh, lots of work being done recently on pollen, you know, mm -hmm. looking at pollen. I, I, I'm going to go out next week to look at a, uh, a carving of a Templar cross in the Catskill area, and wow. it's covered with lichen. And one of the things we want to try to figure out is how fast does lichen, lichen's like a, you know, like a mold almost, right, how right, fast right. does lichen grow? How long would it take for that much lichen to grow over the cross? You know, can we, can we try to date things doing that? Th those kinds of things that, you know, thinking outside the box a little bit scientifically to help us date some of these, you know, rocks can't be carbon dated. So this, mm -hmm. this has been outside in the sun. We can't do the luminescence testing. You know, what can we do? But, um, but the, one of the things that we're trying really hard to do, the, the group that I belong to, NERA, is preserve these sites because science, even in the 10 years or so I've been doing this, the science has really made strides. And a generation or two from now, there'll be scientific methodologies we never even dreamed of that will really help us answer questions to allow us to date a lot of these sites. So our job right now is to preserve them mm -hmm. so that they can be dated at a future time. Absolutely. I have another photo that you sent me, and this is fascinating. I've, I've, I kind of suspect what this is again, and I'll just see if I'm right. Okay, so this, this is going to be a sort of a long explanation. So we haven't really talked about why the Romans would have come over here. One, one um, possibility, uh, one theory is that the Roman 9th Legion, which was stationed in England during the early 2nd century, that, that legion after leaving England, was reassigned for a very short period of time to Jerusalem to put down something called the Bar Kopka Uprising. It was an uprising by the Jews against the Roman uh, overseers. This is about 132 AD. It was the second uprising. The first one was in 70 AD. But the Ninth Legion was sent over to put that down, and then the Ninth Legion disappeared from history. And one of the possibilities is that 
So, so let me put that aside for a second. One of the things that happened during the Bar Kokhba uprising is that the, the, the priests who are in charge of, of, of the temple treasures and, and furnishings uh, hid those treasures. And we know this from something called one of the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Copper Scroll of Qumran. It lists all the treasures that were hidden during this time period so that the Romans couldn't find them. But those treasures have never been found before. And one of the possibilities is, and this is just speculation, informed speculation, mm -hmm. is that when the Ninth Legion went to Jerusalem, put down the uprising, perhaps the priestly families, not wanting to be enslaved and or slaughtered, like so many of the of the rebels and, and, and revolters were, made a deal with the Ninth Legion and said, hey, if you let us live and survive, we will show you where those treasures are buried. And in addition, when you leave here, we want you to take us with you because otherwise they're going to kill us. And a deal might have been made. And at, and at that point, the Ninth Legion might have brought the treasures from Jerusalem along with some of the survivors of the priestly families over to North America. And so not only are we finding a lot of Roman artifacts in the Ohio River Valley, but that if we put that back up again, that, yes, that fortress uh, actually is... If you look at it, the upper half is a oil lamp and the bottom half is a nine-step candelabra known as a menorah. We call this the, the, the Hanukkah fort. It, it basically is a fortress and this was drawn by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1823. It's a fort which essentially commemorates the Hanukkah story, the nine candelabra menorah and the oil lamp. Those are the symbols of Hanukkah. Uh, why would the Native Americans do that? <laughs> Clearly they wouldn't. Why would the Romans do that? They'd have no reasons to do that. But if the Romans brought the Jewish survivors of the Bar Kokhba revolt with them and brought their gold and their treasures as well, that the uh, if there were ancient Jews with the Romans, that's, this makes sense. That would make sense for them to have built a fortress that commemorates their, their Hanukkah celebration. So this is in wow. Ohio, Wow. Uh, it's like, someone's got to explain that to me. If it's not a Hanukkah celebration, commemoration, tell me what it is. There's definitely an oil lamp and a menorah there. So this was done in stone, correct? I'm sorry, this was done what? In stone? Or was this just a parchment that somebody found? This is this is uh, a, an engineer from the Army Corps of Engineers drawing the... Okay, okay. Oh, drawing it out. Okay. He's drawing the fortress. So there's there's raised areas in the fort, like there's um, mount, you know, like uh, the the the, you know, a fort has walls right. and and other defense mechanisms. Basically, these are walls. The lines you see there are walls wow. in a fort. They're defense um, barriers of some kind. But that the fort, really cool. you see the outside is, is the wall of the fort, and then inside there's all these different walls but they were they were built it was built to look like a, a, a menorah and an oil lamp that, that is incredible yeah i thought it was some kind of map i was trying to figure out what it was that is just yeah. absolutely fascinating that's incredible right and again it's one of those things i might have that story totally wrong uh, you know i might that we we know that in the ohio in the ohio river valley that um the university of tennessee excavated what they described as a roman type fort and mm -hmm. they and they and they the archaeologist is the archaeologist said it's third century a roman style fort from the third century right along the ohio river right near where that menorah was that menorah fort is so you know i'm not making that part up right. um but maybe maybe there's another story for that menorah fort that 
the Hanukkah fourth that we don't know about. But uh, there's definitely a, a other artifacts we haven't gotten to yet, which would show some kind of Jewish influence or presence in the Ohio River Valley right around that same time period. Absolutely fascinating. So um, when you talk about, you know, uh, you know, you know, the ancient people here in America, you talk about the Romans being in America. I mean, it's, it's a question of getting enough proof to, to prove it to these scientists so that they'll look into it more. Is that right? I'm sorry, I missed it. When, when, when you talk about like these ancient ruins, you know, and stuff like that, and you talk about the Romans, you know, being here, you guys are going to have to try and find as, as much stuff as possible before the scientists are going to take notice, right? Yeah, so and I'm happy to say, actually, in the past 10 years, I've been doing this about 14 years, so say it's 14 mm -hmm. years that more and more, not just let's start with this. more and more people like yourself like myself are getting interested in this subject and are becoming more and more open-minded to it and even academic types scientists historians archaeologists are becoming more open to it as the evidence increases it's like anything as you get more evidence people are more and more convinced and as one of the great things so this is a perfect example so um, you know, my book came out, it's called Romerica. It's the book that's about the Roman artifacts in America. It came out about five or six months ago. And a gentleman down in Virginia read the book and heard me on an interview like this. Independently, he has been researching a site that he, that he owns, that he's been convinced based on artifacts and, and he's found there was a Roman era site from the second century. He has found uh, the um, evidence of ancient iron works being performed there iron you know, metallurgy and he took the bricks from this what he calls a forge and he sent it into iron um coincidentally to the same lab that we're using for our optically stimulated luminescence testing and sure enough it came back second century everything seems to come back second century he said both a brick and a piece of glazing and they both came back second century and also independently he had determined that the that the design of this metallurgy operation was very similar to what was being used by the ninth legion up along hadrian's wall so he'd come to these independent conclusions second century roman and hadrian's wall which is where the ninth legion was and when he found out that i had reached the same conclusions coming at it from a totally different direction mm -hmm. second century artifacts ninth legion he reached out to me very excited and i was very excited to hear from him Anyway, long story short, I'm going down next weekend to Virginia to, to look at his site and tour his site. But this is the, the point that I want to make is that as this research progresses, now the publicity from it starts to spawn other people who have similar sites that they thought they were alone. And now we start saying, oh, wait, your puzzle piece fits into my puzzle. Mm -hmm. And now we're able to work collaboratively together. And what we thought was just one site all alone a one-off or whatever now it's that no it fits in very nicely with this site over here and that site up there and this site over there we start to put this all together this never could have happened you know a generation ago really before the internet because you know i wouldn't be able to do the interview with you for right. example like right. this and he wouldn't have heard me none of this would have happened but now in the past 30 years or so let's say because of because technology and because the world's so much of a smaller place now, 
this stuff happens so much more quickly and 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 easily and so i think that's people ask how come we never heard about this before how come we're just hearing about this now i think that's the biggest answer is that mm -hmm. all of a sudden you know a, a a a guy a guy like me in massachusetts can can instantly talk to a guy like down in virginia talk to you in california and we can share and all of a sudden it's what would it take out, you yeah. writing letters and looking at microfiche and libraries and going to the Library of Congress and it would have taken months and months and months happens in an hour now. And so that's why I think this is finally starting to change. It's fascinating if, if scientists do not think that, that with all the, I mean, the Romans for what it was worth, I mean, the empire itself, they were the empires like the United States, they were the empire and right. they were traveling all over Europe, but, but, you know, but by foot, by, by ship anyway, or by boat anyway, so I mean, why close your mind to the fact that that, that they got further? Right, and it's—I'm not sure if they—if they personally. I've always thought, you know, as a kid, I watched Star Trek with my father to boldly go where no one has gone before, right? To seek mm -hmm. out new life and new civilization. That's a human condition, mm -hmm. and so I've always thought that, of course, the Mediterranean people, the European people, most of the educated ones knew that the Atlantic Ocean wasn't. Look, Earth wasn't flat. They were they weren't going to fall off the edge. They knew better than that. But it's part of the human condition to want to go exploring, and so you know. And and we know the Phoenicians earlier than the Romans had boats bigger than Columbus, and they were circumnavigating Africa and going up as far as England and even Iceland. And so we know that they could they could sail on the open sea. They sailed by the they navigated by the stars and. So they had the technology and the ability to do that. All they were potentially lacking was the will and the curiosity. And I don't believe that for a second. Not everybody, of course, but there would have been some of them who said, hey, you got you want to go? You want to just keep going, see what we hit? They say, yeah. So let's try it. So, so, so to me, that's what happened. But it's also possible that if you look at a map and see how close Brazil is to the tip uh -huh. of Africa, that's just sailing down around the – the Horn of Africa, you get blown oh, off course into Brazil really easily. And so now you're there. So now just come up the coastline and see what else. So that's mm -hmm. also a possibility. And, and that would explain why the M4 in, in Brazil, the Rio right. de Janeiro. It also so. fascinates me because the Roman mentality of we came, we saw, we're going we're to take it over, you know, didn't go into effect. Because maybe, they, I don't know, maybe they had a lot of respect for the Native Americans. Well, no. At a certain point, you sort of out, you sort of out, um, outrun your supply lines, and the Romans were very careful about that. They knew that they just couldn't supply a, a legion across the oceans, which is why you know when they got to England, they built that wall, Hadrian's Wall, between England and Scotland, because at some point they said, "Look, a, there's nothing up there that we want. B, those crazy picks, the, the natives up there are, are too wild for us to tame." And C, we're just getting too far from our supply lines. We'll just build the wall instead. Again, we, there's no reason for us to keep going. So it would have been really hard, I think, to, to supply a colony across the ocean like that. So if they were happy to come across and trade probably. Um, or in this case, and under my theory, the Ninth Legion said, hey, you know, we can either take this treasure from the temple, of, uh, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem and bring it back and give it to the emperor or we could divide it up a hundred ways amongst all the officers and and get all over to North America and lay low for ten or twenty years, and then come back and live like kings, which is what I think happened. 
this has been fascinating. Oh my gosh, I love history. Like I said, um, I yeah, yeah, me too. You know, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I was an English major and a lawyer by trade, and here I am. But I always love history too, and this gives me a chance to really dive deep into it. And boy, the research is as much fun as writing the books. So I bet good. it is. I would love yeah. to have you on again to hear more of updates from these places that you're going now, if that's okay. Excellent. Oh, I'm happy to. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on just finishing up another book, and would love to come back and talk about that as well. So that'd absolutely. Be great. So uh, for the crowd, tell them where they can get your books. I'm going to show your books on screen here, and I think they're at Amazon. Yeah, right? so, so there's 11 books in the series. They're all historical fiction. Um, Amazon's the best way to find them. Uh, the series is called the Templars in America series. David Brody, B-R-O-D-Y. Uh, they're available both as paperbacks and as Kindle. The first three are in Audible. And I'll try to keep them affordable because I think I think these are really fun stories. Oh, you've got my other ones. So I got three legal thrillers. The, you can see Unlawful Deeds, there's a legal yeah. thriller as well. But yeah. um, the, the, the 11 books that we talked about are, are part of what we talked about tonight, which is the Templars in America series. And if you're interested in that hidden history, and and I try to write them in a way that makes them, you know, a thrill ride. It's a roller coaster. It's plenty of history, I promise you, but it's also in a historical fiction way, so that uh, you know it's not just dry textbook kind of stuff. But um, and then please, please reach out to me, readers. I love to hear from readers. With I especially love to hear. I've got a Templar cross in my backyard. But I'm also happy to hear, you know, comments about the story or, or whatever. But uh, well, I'm definitely you know, going to send you some photos of my M4s and stuff, so you can so you can see it. Excellent. The stuff Excellent. I have in my stuff. collection. But thank you Great. so much. Oh my gosh! I know the first time we did this, we had the major crash happen, and you know we were rolling <laughs> right along. And this show, we rolled right along, and I just I absolutely enjoyed this. You know, I remember taking um, history. I remember humanities. I loved humanities. You know, it was so fun to take those classes, and I was. And my brother took it. My, my brother took anthropology in, in, in college and stuff. So I was. I've always been around, you know, stuff like that growing up and, and whatnot. And this is just Good. fascinating for me, absolutely. So again, I would love to have you on again, and uh, we'll touch base, you know, because I'd love to hear about the other stuff you're, you know, the, the updated stuff that you're doing too. Talking to these beautiful. Other guys. Okay. Yeah, I hope hope that uh, next time I hope you able to say next time I'm on we've dated this stuff conclusively. So, good. Sounds good. All right, Thanks, David. Thank you so much. You All have right. A Take care. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Bye bye. Night. All right, guys. I have been waiting to talk to him. In fact, I was so disappointed the last time because everything uh, went completely on me, and and uh, we had been having a really good conversation at that point. So I was really excited. So we'll get him back on because I would love to hear his updates. And like I said, I'm going to send photos of my my antiquities that I have in stock. And a lot of my antiquities are stuff that aren't museum grade, and, and you know they, they've done patch up on them and stuff. But um, I was able I was able to get them on eBay, and back when I was getting them, they were fairly cheap. But now, if you go to get the same stuff, it's like triple in price. Um. Anyway, Wednesday, one of our favorites is going to be back on. Larry Jorgensen, the Coca Cola guy, is going to be back on. And I know the last time he was on. Um, we, we talked about the inner workings of Coca-Cola, and he said he had other topics that were just as fascinating to talk about. So he's going to come join us Wednesday at, at 6.30 p.m. PDT, or 6.25, you know, if you want to get your munchies together or whatever you want to do. This is the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Radio. 
Uh, if you like the show, share it with five of your friends. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're trying to get as many uh, listeners and watchers as possible. Uh, I'm starting to work on getting sponsorships and stuff for the show. As you can see down at the bottom, as usual, I've got to help bring more exciting and informational guests to this show. And if you feel the need to donate $5, whatever, please do. And that'll be at the paypal.me at California Haunts. And it will go directly into funding the show because we pay, we are a nonprofit group. So I pay out of pocket for the internet. I pay out of pocket for the StreamYard service and everything else that we do with this and all the equipment, and all the lighting, and all the mics and all that good stuff. So I will see you guys. Let me get back in my other thing because I'm trying to push buttons and do this at the same time. It's like chewing gum and walking. Um, I will see you guys on Wednesday, same place, same time. Have a good couple days.